You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. By the way, my name is Joel. I'm one of the elders here, and it's so good to see all your faces this morning as we get ready to open up God's Word. I have the privilege of doing that with you this morning, um, and I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, I had something I was going to tell you, and now I'm trying to recall what it was. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe I was just going to tell you about this series that we're in, so I'll start there. So we are continuing in this series called Confronting Christianity, and we're not just continuing, though. We're also concluding, and today is our last day in this series. I hope it's been a blessing to you. I've just had so many prayers. Yeah. We've... We've had so many prayers already answered, uh, seeking to create the kind of culture of a church where people can safely process through the struggles either that they're personally facing or that they're facing as they uh, walk out their faith in the world. And hopefully it's been an aid to you in that, that we would be a place where you can come and you can have those conversations and you don't need to be afraid about it. Uh, You don't need to be afraid to admit where you're struggling, um, but that we would be a place where you can come to Jesus as a result of having those conversations rather than feeling like you have to walk away from him in the process. And through this, we've been doing that Q&R at the bar and the Q&A after service. Today, again, is our last day doing Q&A. If you haven't been able to join us for it, we really want to see you there, and so much so that our friend Dallas and a bunch of folks in the church have been making a Thanksgiving feast. You might smell that wonderful smoke smell that's going on right now. I don't know if anybody knows that. Uh, but he's smoking some turkeys out there at the moment, and people have been making mashed potatoes and gravy, so you get your, your turkey on before you get your turkey on later in the week. Please join us. We'll also have child care for an hour of that time, noon to one today, so we'd love to see you there. I'm going to pray before we get into this, and, uh, and I would invite you to join me as I do. Father, uh, we thank you so much that we can come together before you, that you and your Holy Spirit are present with us here today. You are active. You are at work in each person's life here, and we invite you to do whatever your work is, whatever you're seeking to do, God. For those of us who are Christians, who have experienced your grace, would you help us have a greater degree of joy and weight around the eternal life that we've begun today? For those of us here who are struggling or who've maybe strayed away from you today, I pray that today would be a day where people return to you. For those of us who don't know you yet, God, I pray that people would come to experience your love in ways that they never could have imagined. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week we looked at the question, how could a loving God allow so much suffering? And we said that how you live is determined by what story you believe you are living inside of. And we said as for Christians, we recognize that we are living inside of God's big story, which includes suffering, but also leads to glory. Because Jesus has come and suffered with us, but has not yet returned to wipe away every tear from our eyes. 
And in a very similar way, his two arrivals sandwich us between salvation and judgment. Jesus has come to manifest the love of God by dying to save us, but he's patiently, patiently waiting for as many people as possible to have the chance to believe in him before returning to judge the living and the dead. And this is key for us understanding today's topic. How could a loving God send people to hell? This question is maybe harder than last week's questions. This may be the hardest question for you uh, in this entire series. Because while God as a loving creator seems appealing, maybe even if you're an atheist, you're like, yeah, great, God's a loving creator. That sounds like a great myth to believe in if you're an atheist. You might be thinking that. But very, very few people are attracted to the concept of hell, even if they believe in God. Indeed, we would all love to imagine a world without a need for it. But what I want to point out here at the beginning, similar again to last week, is that there's an assumption behind this question. How could a loving God send people to hell? The assumption is God can't be both loving and send people to hell. And this once again places us in the seat of authority over God. Because if we're going to determine that God can't possibly be loving and send people to hell, then we are making ourselves the sovereign ruler and judge of the universe. Imagine with me for a moment a new TV series called Judge Judy, except for it's Judge Judy presiding over the entire universe. Okay? Or Judge Joel Brown, not Joe Brown, presiding over the entire universe. Judge finite human being presiding over the entire universe. Just think about how ludicrous that is. Because not only do we not have the right, we don't have the power for this position. Only God does. And so as we face this question, I want you to consider, is it possible, just maybe, as Francis Chan says, that our Creator's justice is more developed and more right than our sense of justice. Is it possible? And so before we can even look at how the Bible talks about hell as good news, we need to examine our own pride, our own arrogance, and see if we really do know everything or if we need to humble ourselves before our eternal, omniscient, omnipresent creator God and let him be God. I want to encourage you when you find yourself uh, in general, but especially today, just bumping up against what the Bible says, I want to encourage you, just pause. Evaluate your heart. Where's your posture and I encourage you to do that today. We're going to explore this topic in Scripture through a few questions, the first of which is, what is hell and what is it not? And we're going to start with what hell is not because if we're really honest, hell is not what most of us imagine it to be. Most of us have had our views of hell heavily shaped by Dante's Inferno, 
which was a 14th century uh, depiction done by an Italian guy who essentially merged biblical ideas with Greek mythology. And you might be like, yeah, I've never read Dante's Inferno. I don't even know what you're talking about. That's okay. I haven't read it either. My wife's actually reading it right now, which I think is really interesting. Um, and I, I don't know, I'll get the Cliffs notes from her, I guess. Uh, but even if you haven't read it, here's where Dante's ideas have spread. They've spread into pop culture, into the movies that we watch, into the TV shows that we watch. And I think probably the most vivid way that Dante's Inferno has affected our culture is through cartoons. I can't help, every time that I think about the concept of hell, I can't help but think of Yosemite Sam. Uh, he shows up in hell pretty much like every single cartoon that this guy's in, and in this one he's Yosemite Satan, I think. Um, but, but this also shows up in all kinds of other places. Recently I rediscovered the Farsight comics. Anybody like the Farsight? So I think probably the funniest thing, funniest comic strip ever. Gary Larson, he's a Washington native. I think he grew up fundamentalist, if I remember right. <laughs> and so he kind of had a, a bit of an obsession with hell. And I'll just give you a quick little, little uh, journey through a few of these. Welcome to heaven, here's your harp. Welcome to hell, here's your accordion. Okay? <laughs> okay. Next one. Uh, despite his repeated efforts to explain things to her, Satan could never dissuade his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. Mom, no! She's, okay. Nerds in hell, hot enough for you? Okay. Come on, come on, it's either one or the other. Damned if you do and damned if you don't. And, and just take a look at that guy whistling there, moving the coals or whatever he's doing. You know we're just not reaching that guy. Okay, you get the point, right? As funny as these are... Uh, it, it, it gives us a sense that all of this hell stuff is just a joke, right? It's just a big joke. Or if it is real, then it's merely an unpleasant or maybe less fun version of heaven. Like God says to you, yeah, sorry, you don't get a lollipop today. Or sorry, you don't get a VIP pass. You're going to have to go sit in general admission. That's the sense of what we think of oftentimes when we think of hell. So that's what it's not, Okay. But what is it? The Bible describes hell as a very real place. It really does exist. Let's do a quick survey through Scripture on, on how it's talked about. In the Old Testament days, the Jews spoke of a place called Sheol, which was very different from hell. So you don't see hell as we think of it in the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, shale was, why don't you guys say shale with me? Shale, okay. Shale was a place of the dead, not a place of punishment. So whether you lived a righteous life or not, whether you had faith in God or not, you went to shale. But in the New Testament, there are two words that we find translated as hell. The first one is Gehenna. Why don't you guys say Gehenna with me? Gehenna, yeah. And, and this word is used 12 times in the New Testament, and it refers to a literal place on earth just outside the city of Jerusalem. And this place is called the Valley of Hinnom. So the word Gehenna literally comes from the Hebrew words Gah, that means valley of, and 
Hinnom, that's where we get Hinnom. So Valley of Hinnom. And so if you want to, you can go to hell today. It's right there. Looks like actually a pretty nice place, doesn't it? Would you like to go there? So that, doesn't that make hell a little bit confusing? If you know that when the Bible uses that word, it's describing that place. Well, why is the Valley of Hinnom a depiction of hell? A simple explanation comes from Jeremiah thirty-two thirty-five. Here's what he says. They built the high places of Baal, that's one of the false gods, in the valley, that word valley is Ga, of the son of Hinnom, that is Hena, to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, that's another name for Baal, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. So this is a place right outside those city walls where God's people betrayed him by worshiping other gods. That's what that place was. And the, the God that's mentioned here again is Molech, otherwise known as Baal. This is the same God. And it, and it wasn't just evil that they did this because it was idolatry. It was evil because it was idolatry. But it was especially evil, we're told here, because of the method of idolatry. The worshipers lit the fires of Gehenna, of this valley, and they sacrificed their children to this God. Just think about that. And they did so because they believed that Molech would ensure financial prosperity for the family and ensure that they would have future children. And so they treated these children, these human beings, these these children made in God's image as disposable instruments of their own greed and personal security. Does this sound familiar at all? The point is, is that this was a physical place where fires burned, where people burned, and it was the epitome of evil. Gehenna was a literal hell on earth. That is why this word is used to describe hell in the New Testament. The other word translated as hell in the New Testament is Hades. And this is a Greek word that's used 11 times in the New Testament. And the concept here is actually very similar to Sheol. You remember just saying that a minute ago. Can you guys say Hades with me? Hades and Hades means the world of the dead. It's the same word that's used in the Greek Old Testament when the term Sheol is used. So it's, it's a very similar concept. You might be familiar with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. And that story uses the word Hades, and it describes yet something similar to Gehenna. So it's actually describing something that's pretty much the same as we just talked about Gehenna being. It's a place of fire. It's a place of torment. In other passages, especially when Jesus talks about Hades, uh, he, he describes it as a place where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He talks about it as a place uh, of being cast into outer darkness. And in all of this, the point is that hell 
is definitely in the Bible. We can't ignore it. It's all over the place. And we also can't ignore the fact that Jesus wasn't just a gentle and humble teacher. He talked about hell more than anyone. And yet, the way that the Bible talks about hell in general, and Jesus talks about it in specific, it's clearly figurative. Okay? This is really important. This give you a quick example. For example, you can't have both fire and outer darkness in the same place, right? Think about that for a minute. Yet these are both separate descriptions that are just trying to get at the heart of what this place is like. We're meant to imagine the worst place that we can possibly conceive of. One minute it might be fire, the other minute it might be outer darkness. And we're meant to realize that hell is way worse than the worst that we can imagine. And it's not just horrible, though. It's also eternal. And so the next question I want to address is, how is hell both bad news and good news? You might have already picked up that it's bad news, but we do need to go a little bit deeper. And to some extent, hell is bad news for the same reason that it's good news. I'll get into that in just a moment. But to begin with, hell is bad news because it's not just for the bad people out there, church. Can I get an amen? It's not just for those bad people out there. We are all, all of us, sinners. And apart from God's grace through Jesus, we all, every single one of us, deserves hell. You know, we asked this question earlier, how could a loving God send people to hell? But the Bible, but the, but the question I've been wrestling with and that the Bible seems to wrestle more with is how could God send people to heaven? Now, as I said, the descriptions of hell in the Bible, they're, they're figurative. The reason for that is that any time that someone's trying to describe something that's kind of otherworldly, right, they, they have to use familiar ideas to make those things understandable. And so while descriptions of hell are figurative, those images do reflect a true reality that is different from anything that we can imagine on earth. And, and let me give you an example of why it's hard for us to imagine hell. Think about this for a minute. Every single day, whether you acknowledge it or not, we experience God's grace. Every day. He's keeping the planets spinning. He's designed a world to work in a certain way where Plants create oxygen, and you can breathe air, and you can eat food, and you can survive, right? God is present here now, working for the good of humanity. And so the reason why we can't imagine hell is because on your worst day, you are living the dream compared to hell. You are experiencing God's grace even in the midst of suffering. Even if you suffer, there will be an end point to that suffering. And in the meantime, there are all these glimpses of goodness interwoven amid all the brokenness that we witness and we experience and we cause today. But hell will be the exact opposite of that. 
burning, unimaginable pain. The most severe punishment that there is. And yet that's not the worst part of hell. The worst part is what Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians 1. Here's what he says. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, that's when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer. These are people, he's describing people who are unrepentant sinners. People who have not turned away from a life of sin and turned to Jesus to trust in him, but people who have gone headlong into what they, uh, what they want to do. They want to remain the Lord of their own lives. That's who he's describing here. And they, verse 9, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The worst punishment that a person could ever receive is banishment from the presence of God. This is the bad news about hell. It's way worse than you can imagine because God is the source of life and light and everything good. And to be away from his presence is to experience the greatest death that anyone could ever face. As one Bible commentator said, heaven is primarily the presence of God, and hell is the loss of that presence. And so the punishment of flaming fire, as Paul describes it here, of of eternal destruction, it's really brought to a head here. The utter absence of anything good, the utter absence of and rejection from God. We cannot possibly know how horrible this will be. But it will be just. It will be just. And that is why it's also good news. I want to talk about that now for a minute. And I want to do so from a passage that begins with perhaps the most famous verse in the whole Bible one that you may not have continued reading past that first verse and seen what else Jesus has to say. Here are his words. Here's what he says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Friends, 
you don't just need to know the bad news about hell today. You also need to know the good news. And the good news is that you are deeply loved by God. Did you see that? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Do you know that you are loved by God? Do you believe it, more importantly? You know, we spend our whole Christian lives learning to embrace this reality. If we could just deeply believe and know the love of God, everything would be different. To the degree that we know the love of God and believe in it, we become more like Jesus. And so I want to say it to you again. God loves you. And he's, he loves every single person on earth, every single person who has ever lived. God loves them. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. In fact, it'd probably be good for you to think about who you are and what you've done. And remember, God still loves me. And he proved it, Jesus says, when he sent his only son to save us. And here Jesus says that he came to save us. Specifically, look in verse 16. He came to save us from perishing. This word literally means destruction. We're meant to think of eternal destruction. Jesus came to save us from eternal destruction. And the way that we are saved, Jesus says, is by believing in him, which leads us to eternal life with God. Just as much as hell is unimaginable pain, heaven on earth is unimaginable bliss and joy. We're told in Revelation 21 that after Jesus judges the living and the dead, that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that he will remove all suffering and illness and disease and sin and all of the effects of all of these things. All of our regrets, everything that is bad about this life, Jesus will take away and we'll be left with just joy in God's presence. We can't imagine this either. It's, it's going to be so incredible that our minds cannot fathom how wonderful this is. But here's why this is such good news now, not just in the future. Notice what Jesus said in verse 17. Look at what he said. He said he was not sent to condemn the world, but to save it. Jesus' purpose in coming was to show the world God's love by dying for us and rising for our salvation. His purpose was not to come and condemn people. He didn't come as our judge, but as our Savior. You see why this is incredible news? It means that right now, we are living in a time of God's love and of His salvation. But here's the problem, and here's why this is also bad news. Jesus says that even though He didn't come to condemn, we can condemn ourselves. That's what he says. 
How can we do that? How? By rejecting Jesus Christ as the only Son of God. By rejecting Jesus Christ as the only Savior from God. By rejecting the light of Jesus, which is the life that is found only in Him. And more than that, we can condemn ourselves, he says, by loving darkness, by doing evil. And you see, this condemnation that we bring upon ourselves, it will be confirmed by Jesus when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. Because you see, Jesus came as a Savior, but he will return as a judge. All who have rejected him, all who have rejected his light, who've rejected the truth about him, who have loved evil, who have loved wickedness and darkness, they will be justly punished. And what I want you to hear in all of that is that people get what they want. That's the point. As C.S. Lewis put it, at the final judgment, people will either say to God, Thy will be done. Or God will say to them, Thy will be done. And so those who reject the Son of God will experience God rejecting them. Those who have opposed God without repenting in this life will experience perfect justice for what they have done. The Bible ends in... Revelation 22, with some words from Jesus. Here's what he says. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. This is payback time. Righteous payback time. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus says, I am the living God, the eternal God. I was here before the beginning, and I will be here at the end. Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, all people, no exceptions. Every single person, you and me alike, will be judged with our partiality, the Bible says. Based on, what, what did Jesus say? Based on what we have done. Based on our lives. On how we have lived. And the point here is that merely saying that we believe in Jesus is not enough. We have to ask, if I say I've believed, does my life actually show it? Is Jesus really the Lord of my life? But you see, here's where God's love comes back into focus, and it's more good news, okay? I'm going back and forth here. I know, it might feel like a roller coaster ride, but there's more good news here. It might be a bit counterintuitive at first, but there's more good news because those who haven't repented of their evil deeds will receive true justice. Now, we all want justice. Can I get an amen? We all want justice for those who have done wrong, of course, except for us. We're the exception. I will take mercy. Thank you very much. Which is exactly the problem, right? That's why, like I said earlier, we are not capable to judge the universe. But to know that our loving, righteous God will make all things right in the future, man, that is such a great comfort. 
If you have suffered abuse, if you have suffered injustice at the hands of sinners, you don't need me to prove this to you. You know it on a visceral level. But maybe you're unconvinced that hell could be an expression of God's love. Maybe, maybe it's just not, it just doesn't sit right with you. Doesn't, doesn't wrath and punishment seem like the opposite of love, we might ask? And, and I think it's a great question. I think it does seem like the opposite of love. I once heard that anger is defending something that you love, and I think that's true. And we, we tend to express, personally as, as sinners, we tend to express our anger sinfully, oftentimes because we love the wrong things, or we love the right things in the wrong way. But think about this, God's love is perfect, and God's anger is perfect. And in a broken, sinful, fallen world, you cannot have one without the other. Both have to exist side by side. And so therefore, for God to love the repentant, those who have turned away from evil and turned to Him, for God to love the victim, for God to love the exploited, He must come to their aid. And He must punish those who have done them harm. Miroslav Volf says it far better than I ever could. I'm going to take a sip of water and then I'm going to read what he says. Just a moment. Here's what he says. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. He's from Croatia. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled. Day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage by doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion by refusing to condemn the bloodbath but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Again, we're in a broken, fallen, sinful world, 
And in this world, God's wrath and his love exist side by side. We cannot have one without the other. It would be unloving for God not to punish people who have committed evil against him, who have committed evil against those whom he loves and against those who love him. And the book of Revelation, in that same passage that we just read, Jesus later says, Blessed are those who wash their robes. This is an allusion to those being cleansed by the blood of Jesus, being washed and and wearing these robes, signifying their new righteousness in him, so that they may have the right to the tree of life. That's where eternal life is coming from. It's a symbol. And they may enter the city by the gates. This is the city of Jerusalem. The Bible says that the, the place where we will dwell for all eternity, it's, it's given this picture of a city coming down out of heaven, coming to earth, the city of Jerusalem or of Zion. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. This is almost the last words of the whole Bible. We all want God to rid the world of rape and exploitation and murder and lies. Amen? We want him to do that. But what if in order to do it, he has to rid the world of us? When we read these verses, we are meant to ask ourselves, am I on that list? I don't want to be on that list. And we're meant to think, God, have mercy on me. So good that he's merciful, and we can make that prayer, and he will answer it. God, have mercy on me. I repent of all the evil that I've done, my very, very worst sins, and even the ones that I've grown accustomed to. I need, God, your transforming grace to come so that I can become the kind of person who can dwell with you forever. God, thank you that you are merciful. Come and change me today. And the good news is that hell is not here yet. We are in a time of God's love and God's salvation, and the story is not over. We haven't gotten to that passage that we just read in Revelation 22. That's somewhere off in the distance. Jesus hasn't yet returned, but this present age that we are in will not last forever. And so I want to plead with each of you here today. I want to plead with myself, with everyone, to repent and believe. Again, to repent means to turn away from living one way and turn to another. Turn away from living for yourself and turn to living for Jesus Christ as Lord. Turn to living for others, for the sake of others. Not just so you can avoid hell in the future, but so that you can begin eternal life with him today. Let's pray.
Oh God, we thank you for this good news that you are love and you love us. We confess that far too often we just don't embrace that reality. We don't, we don't believe it. It's why we chase after all kinds of other things that we think are going to be better for us than you. Help us to know your love today. Help us to know your mercy. For all of us, God, we want, I pray that we would repent and turn to you and your love and salvation today. For those who, who are just wrestling through this right now, God, I pray that you would give them a special awareness of your presence here with them. For those of us who are resistant to the idea of, of your anger, your judgment, or your punishment, God, I pray that, that you would just let your love wash over us, that we might embrace you as the just judge and give up trying to be the just judge ourselves. And God, most of all, I pray that you would transform us, that we might become ministers of your love, that we might show the world what you are like. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.